No, this isn't some huge pulpit, but it is one of the most comfortable places for me to be. Thankful to be back. I, I love uh, speaking with you and sharing the glories of Christ with you today. What an amazing passage, right? I think we could probably just meditate on this without explanation and you would get glories and glories and glories, tons of glory from Christ in this passage. We're going to be taking the Lord's Supper this week and next week. Um, I know that's different, but we're going to be doing the cross for two weeks, so I thought it would be very appropriate um, for us to do that. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the gospel And today we get a good close-up look at the gospel in our passage. Whenever we think of royalty, we think of riches and robes and respect. Kings and queens on the earth get treated with honor and respect. Music plays when they enter rooms. People bow when they approach royalty. People pay tribute or taxes to their king. Even our money has images of our royalty on it. In Jesus' day, the Caesar was considered a god. They were worshipped. And the king led the people, and the people obeyed the king. That was the way it was. This is the world's understanding of royalty. Respect, riches, worship. This is what royalty gets. This is how people viewed royalty. So how did royalty view themselves? Kings throughout history have demonstrated this kind of expecting respect and honor. They expected to be treated this way. Kings and rulers often read their own press clippings. Kings and rulers thought that they were higher than the common man. They began to see themselves as better and more valuable than their people. They thought they deserved to be loved. They deserved respect. They deserved honor. They exalted themselves. They treated their people with contempt often. They destroyed any of their subjects who tried to undermine their authority or popularity. All you have to do is read your Old Testament and you see this over and over and over Kings expecting to be treated better than their own subjects. They used whatever authority and political influence they had to force submission and worship. But today, in our passage, this understanding of royalty is challenged greatly. If we define royalty the way the world does, we will miss the whole point of our passage. Today, we're going to see what a true king looks like. If we define a, define a great king by the world's definition of a king, we will miss the glory of the king found in this passage. I find it interesting. If you read through this passage, you might be tempted to think, I see no king in this passage. But over and over, this is the main point that Luke is making in this passage. He's emphasizing the kingship of Jesus even in his death, which is very interesting. Today we will see humanity treats the true king of kings with disrespect and dishonor. They mock him. They reject him. They hurt him. But as we will see, Jesus demonstrates what true royalty looks like. Today we're going to see what a true king will do for his subjects. Today, we see Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. When we look at a passage like this, I I, I think, and, and, and to apply this to all of us, we often think if we have that position of leadership, that we should be served, correct? We're often... Uh, men in the house sometimes are take that role and that position and say, okay, I'm supposed to lead, so women, submit to me. Well, I'll tell you folks and men, gentlemen, listen to me closely. Today you're going to see what it means to lead. Today you're going to see what royalty does. This is what a king does. This is what your house is about. This is what kings do. They die for their subjects. 
Today we're going to see the glory of the King of Kings so that we will honor him forever. When we see in our passage, and you can notice that it breaks down into three sections, three scenes that reveal the glory of our King. Luke revealed three main scenes from the cross revealed in his account. We see in first in verse 20, in 26 to 31, the caution from the king on the way to the cross. The caution from the king on the way to the cross. Second, we see the compassion of the king at the cross in verses 32 to 43. And then next week, we'll deal with the conquest of the king at the cross in verses 44 to 49. So, let's examine the glory of our king of kings revealed in these scenes. Let's start with the caution from the king on the way to the cross. When they had led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breast that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Notice first, there's an onlooker who was caught up in the chaos. His name is Simon of Cyrene. This Simon, mentioned by name, probably points to him being known by Luke and maybe even others that would read the gospel account. Simon was a Jewish man who was, part, was from a part of North Africa called Cyrene. This is a modern-day Libya. Mark's account says that Simon's was, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus in Mark 15, 21. And there's a Rufus that is mentioned in, with a positive light in Romans 16, 13. So this could be the son of Simon. Many speculate and many uh, uh, suggest that Simon became a believer at some point, either on the road uh, to the cross or afterwards. There's not a lot of information, and it goes kind of from historical documents and things like that. But as a whole, we see at least Simon got a good close-up look at the king as he followed Jesus to the cross. One of the reasons why Simon carried Jesus' cross was because he had been beaten numerous times. And it was absolutely, he was physically at a place where he would have died before he got to the cross if he carried it. It is very possible, though, that Simon, as he watched his Savior and the Messiah walked that road to Calvary, came to understand the glory of the Messiah. Maybe he stayed on and looked. We don't know, but we do know one thing for sure. The king was being followed by somebody that was carrying his cross. The crowd, though, notices the main section or the main point of this section is the crowd expressed concern over the mistreatment of Jesus. Notice it literally says a large crowd of people and of women. Of women. Now, when I got to looking at this passage, I thought to myself, well, why not? Why weren't these same people screaming, "Don't crucify Jesus!" at the at the at the trial? Why was the large crowd screaming for Jesus to be crucified? And now we have a large crowd of people and of women mourning that Jesus is going there. As I went along and I, I read through the commentaries, it's widely held that the mourners, the ladies, were not necessarily mourning with good motives. It's not real clear why they were mourning. In our culture, normally people only lament the loss of their loved ones, correct? But in Jesus' day, the Jewish culture literally had professional mourners. We see this type of mourning at Lazarus' death in John 11. So I'm not convinced that the entire crowd was really grieving with pure motives. They did not really love Jesus. I believe many of these people were mourning the loss of another young Jewish life 
Because after all, Jesus was in his early 30s probably. They were really clueless of who and what was really happening to Jesus. The statement Jesus made to them says, You should mourn for yourselves points to both their own need to be rescued and possibly their own need for repentance. So when you see this and he gives this warning, you get this idea that Jesus doesn't look back at them and say, oh, you're going the right thing, you should be mourning for me, I'm dying. He's saying, no, you're going to face a judgment that's even greater. You need to repent, in effect. The religious system of their day had made everything about personal achievement and personal penance. Some, if not most, of these people were just doing the religious thing. See, another Jewish man was being crucified, so let's mourn and follow. Let's weep. Let's wail. It was a show of religious piety in their day. This self-exalting piety had greatly troubled Jesus at Lazarus' grave in John eleven thirty-three. If nothing else, this was an expression of mourning with no hope. The people who followed Jesus did not understand what Jesus was accomplishing. They were stuck in their religious system. You know, I saw something very similar. I think we saw this when we were at the Basilica, Omar. I saw something very similar to this in Mexico City at the second largest Roman Catholic church in the world, in Mexico City. There were people literally crawling on their knees trying to mutilate their bodies in order to earn favor with their idol, Guadalupe Mary. There was an older lady that at one point we were on the steps and she was uncontrollably crying. I mean, mourning and wailing out loud. It was just a, a disturbing scene to watch as her loved ones looked on and this lady was just wailing and their family members were crying I think she was probably mourning over uh, a lost loved one. Someone had died or something. But it was such a desperate search situation. It was as if she thought, and, and she, her emotions were so out of control, that she thought that she could somehow get her loved one out of purgatory by crying and wailing, or somehow earn the favor of, of Guadalupe Mary, her idol, to somehow have mercy on her. It was such a desperate situation. And I have to admit there were emotions that were flying around from anger over the lies of this false religion uh, to sadness over their plight. I mean, I found myself angry at moments and then crying at other moments. Just They need the gospel. They need hope. You understand, folks, I, I, I strongly advise you all to be praying for these ministries that we went and saw in Mexico. These are... Millions of people. In Mexico City, there's 24 million people. And only 100,000 or so profess a, a Protestant-like faith. A, a, a faith in Christ alone, by grace alone. Oh, folks, do you understand? Millions are going to hell. And, and they have no hope. And this is what the scene was like. I think it's very similar, and it kind of reminds me of this situation where these mourners are following after Jesus, but they have no hope. They're just doing it as a religious piety. They're not thinking. They don't really care about Jesus. They're just doing this religious act. Interestingly, Jesus was aware of their circumstances around him. And he knew these people. And, and folks, I don't know about you, but this just shows the glory of our Savior here, doesn't it? When you look at this passage, think for a second. If you were the one that had been beaten, if you were the one that was facing this death on a cross, what would be your attention? It would be like, hey, I just got to get through this moment. Just get me through the next second. Eyes completely focused on, I can't think about the pain. I can't think about what's going to come. Instead, who's he thinking about? He's thinking about the mourners. He's thinking about the lost ones behind him. He's thinking about those that are lost and grieving with wrong motives. And notice what he does. He confronts them. 
He literally says, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Oh, folks, again, over and over through this process, we have seen Jesus has shown us that he was more focused on others in the midst of his trial and even in the midst of his mistreatment than himself. That is our Savior. Even at the worst possible moment, at the moment that he's just about to die, he can't even carry his own crossbeam. But who's he thinking about? Others. Praise God. What a Savior we have. What a merciful God we have. Notice Jesus cautioned the crowd of their coming demise. So Jesus told these mourners they should be more concerned with their future than his present circumstances. Again, this was a great act of mercy. Jesus warns these mourners that judgment was coming, so repentance was in order. Days are coming when people will say the childless are blessed. Now, folks, this is totally opposite than Jewish culture, especially in that day. But what he was getting at was judgment was going to be so ruthless that you didn't want to have children because the children were going to face that judgment. Literally, you it was better for you to have no children because your children were going to be destroyed. They were going to be wickedly, brutally killed. They were going to be butchered at the judgment. The judgment Jesus is probably referring to was in 70 A.D. He had already talked about it in Luke 21. This was approximately 37 years later. The Romans came into Jerusalem and spared none. Even the children were massacred. Days are coming when people will say... Kill us because the judgment is coming upon us. Literally, have the mountains fall on us. Have us be covered because we don't want to face the judgment that's coming. Again, I believe this judgment that Jesus was talking about was in 70 A.D., but a foreshadowing of the horrible time of judgment on the Jewish people for years to come. What was going to happen in 70 A.D. was only the beginning of many, many more of these judgments. We know this, don't we? There is a partial hardening. All you have to do is look at the Holocaust to see. God has had a partial hardening on the Jewish people. And as a whole, there is a great judgment. The world hates them. They have rejected their Messiah, and now they are under a time of judgment. The Jewish people were subjected as a whole to rejecting their Messiah. Thus, they were under a time of great judgment. And it was bad now that they were crucifying some of the Jewish people. That's what he's getting at in verse 31. It's bad now, but it's going to get really bad. Literally, it's going to be so bad that you're going to run for your life and you're going to hate your own existence. So yet again, Jesus was not threatening these mourners. He was warning them. He was showing mercy We see a clear picture of the good shepherd warning his own sheep as the wolves carried him away. Again, get that picture, ladies and gentlemen. We have a Savior that is concerned more for us than his own self. This must have had some kind of impact on the onlookers, right? Especially Simon and the criminals who were being crucified and the soldiers carrying out this wicked murder. As we will see, the Lord was using Jesus' words and actions, even in his death, to draw people to himself. That's a beautiful picture. I'll tell you, we can spend hours just meditating on these truths, and we can see what our God is all about. The cross demonstrates the glory of our King, the one who saves sinners like me and you. So now we come to the second scene, the compassion of the king from the cross. The compassion of the king from the cross. 
at the cross. Jesus offered a prayer for mercy on those persecuting him. Notice in verse 32 it says, Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. This was the least likely time to expect compassion from Jesus. After arriving at the place of the skull, where we, got the, where we get our name Calvary from, Jesus was crucified. Jesus had just three, or Jesus had just had three metal spikes driven through his arms and his feet. He also had much of his skin ripped from his back after being scourged. He was in physical agony. Jesus was fully human and he hurt. He felt pain. It would be hard not for us to focus on this pain, wouldn't it? Crucifixion was a method of death meant to be agonizing. The Roman government had come up with this as a means of trying to make the people suffer. And he wanted them to suffer over and over. Literally, people would suffer, suffocate over and over. As they could not hold themselves up, they, they would lose their breath and they would either die or they would push up a little bit to get a breath. It was an agonizing way to die. Yet, notice what Jesus was saying. <laughs> Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Is that not shocking? It should be startling to all of us. Why? I mean, how many times... Have you been hurt and you said immediately, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Most of the time when we are hurt, we say what? Why would you do that? That's not fair. What did I do to you? We try to get the person to change, right? We try to get the person to at least see how bad they are and what they're doing. And yet here... He shows mercy and grace to these men that are driving spikes into his arm and into his feet and mocking him. Literally here, the Greek, in the Greek, Jesus was repeatedly saying, is what it says. Jesus was saying over and over and over. This isn't one time that he said this phrase, I don't think. It's not, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, they are doing, and then stop. I think he continually said this over and over to these, to the Lord, to the Father. Now, once, I want you to notice, but once he says this, what do they do? They continue to persecute him. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. They persecuted him more. He was continuously praying for those that were hurting him. Now, so the natural question is, was his prayers answered? Were his prayers answered? When he was praying this to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Was his prayer answered? I believe it was. Look at Luke 23, 47. Look at 23, 47. By the end, Jesus had died the centurion, some of the soldiers that had watched, one of them in particular, had noticed what Jesus was about and had saw the difference and had maybe even heard the petitions and had saw the difference in this man. And it says in Luke 23, 47, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Wow, folks, do you see at least... One of these guards appears to get it and appears to turn to God in light of what they saw from Jesus on the cross. Again, as we talked last time in the backdrop drop of evil, God was still revealing His righteous ways. God was still saving. 
Here we see Lord, the Lord literally more focused on others as he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And then the father acting to work in one of the soldiers and have him come to an awareness of his son. Weren't these the least likely of objects that the Lord would have compassion on? I mean, these were probably some of the guards who had mocked him and beaten him and abused him previously for the last several hours. And yet Jesus is praying for the Father to forgive them. Folks, this is what our Savior is all about. Praise God. Isn't that good news? He is a forgiving God. How many of you have messed up this week? How many of you have been cold a little bit? In other words, you've thought to yourself, man, I should be loving Christ and on fire for Him more. Anybody in here a little bit lukewarm? Your relationship with God might not be, or might not be what you want it to be. Struggling. I got good news for you. The same Savior is here. He's still reigning and ruling. And He's still a forgiving God. Cry out to Him and He's there. Isn't that good news? No matter how much we take Him for granted, no matter how many times we're not faithful, He is always faithful. Isn't that good news? I'll tell you this, I sure don't take hope in myself. I take my hope in the one that always forgives me. Notice we see they were literally gambling for his clothes. Again, we know from our Old Testament reading in Psalm 22 that this was prophesied way before, over a thousand years earlier. They divide, it, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I want you to understand that all the events of the cross were not a mistake. Every single detail was part of God's plan. Yet here Jesus looks with compassion and prays for these wicked men who were more concerned with their pockets and their wallets than they were Jesus. In this glimpse of the cross, we once again see the nature of our Lord and Savior, don't we? I find it interesting that the glory, the glorious details are not really given by any of the, or, or rather the, the gory details are not really given by the gospel writers. You notice in your passages, and if you read over, I challenge you over the next week, since we're going to be doing the Lord's Supper this weekend, next week it would be great. For you to read all the gospel accounts of the cross. Spend some time looking at it. It's interesting to me that there's not very many gory details. You don't see, and blood splattered all over. Or, you know, and the, and the soldiers who were soaked by blood did this. And we don't see all that, do we? We don't hear any of that. Or we don't see, and, we, and the cries of the criminals as the spikes went through them. They don't have that, do they? It's very interesting to me. Yet we know that that's probably what was happening. Why don't the gospel writers emphasize that? And I think the emphasis is placed on the person and nature of Christ more than on the exact physical sufferings. And, also, and, and I, I would suggest that even more than that, aren't you seeing as we go through this that the emphasis is on the reaction of others to the cross in Luke's account? And how God is using this to save people in the cross account. And then next week we'll see, we'll see there's a, a, a great divine battle that happens. Or you see the darkness coming over. But you don't see a lot of the gory details. You don't see the things that if we were writing a movie, hint, hint, it would be all over the movie, right? When you see the Passion of the Cross, that's all you saw was blood. The whole thing was a bloody movie, wasn't it? But yet when you read these gospel accounts, you don't see that, do you? Why? Because the emphasis is not on the blood, that bloody glory. Don't, don't take me out of context. Some of y'all are like, the blood is what saves us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. His death is what saves us. But the emphasis is on what Jesus is accomplishing it's about what he's accomplishing by taking the wrath of God. 
and what he's accomplishing to save people from their sin. That's the focus of the gospel accounts, not on how much physical suffering he went through. Though that would be great, and that was great, that is not the main focus. Listen, what Jesus encountered on the cross is something that no person has ever or could ever accomplish on their own. Nobody went through any kind of suffering close to what Christ went through. Now you say, Mike, that's not true. Many people were crucified. Yes, many people were crucified. But not no one except Christ took the wrath of God on himself at that point. No one. No one has what we will talk about next week in verse 44. So, focus your attention more on the person and work of Christ and what he's accomplishing and what's the response from the people around him. Notice next, Jesus revealed a commitment to save others through his sacrifice. In verse 35 it says, The people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Folks, when we see this, the first thing that we think is, Oh, this is wicked, isn't it? Isn't it horrible what these rulers were doing? Do you understand who the rulers probably were? These were the religious elites. These were the ones that had cried out crucified and incited the crowd to have him put to death. Listen, it wasn't enough for these religious rulers to just see him die and and have him sentenced to death. They literally came out to mock him in his death. They came out and they sneered. They mocked him. Folks, I believe this is all part of Satan's plan to try and get Jesus to abandon the Father's plan for him. I believe this is all part of the plan that Satan was trying to get Jesus to come down off the cross. I find it interesting. When you read through Psalm 22, you saw the bulls of Bashan encircle me and all of those hard words, those hard concepts there. I think often those are... Figures or pictures that are pointing forward to what was going to happen at the cross. And here we have these men, these rulers that are circling him and mocking him for being the Christ. But notice Jesus was not shaken by the sneering and the mocking. As I've often said, Scripture makes it clear that what the world thinks, often the opposite is true, correct? What the world thinks, often the opposite is true. We see it in their little phrase. He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Listen closely, folks. Jesus was and is the chosen one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ of God. And the reason why he did not save himself was because he was saving others. If he would have gotten down off the cross, millions would have been condemned to eternal hell. He was and is and will always be the only hope for a sinful humanity. The answer to the question, he saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one, everything they say, the opposite is true. He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that's why he's not saving himself, so that he can save others. (laughs) Everything they thought, the opposite was true. This was the Christ. This is what he was sent to do. This was the chosen one. So as the wicked religious rulers mocked him, Jesus' response to remain and face the judgment of God on behalf of his children revealed more and more that he was the Christ, the chosen one. See, they said, look, prove to us that you're the Christ, come down. But what proved that he was the Christ is that he stayed there. Everything they think, the opposite is true. And I just want to challenge all of you. This is the way the world thinks that we talk to, too. Do you understand? 
when you're dealing with the world around you, the world does not think like God. They don't think biblically. Does it shock you that evolution has taken hold in our country? Not at all. Not to me. It's not shocking at all. You abandon God, and God will give you up, and you will make gods in your mind. And guess who the God of evolution is? Man. It's the pinnacle. They made man the pinnacle. It's no different. All of the things that we see in the world, why is it this way? It's this way because they hate the chosen one. They think opposite. It would have been nothing for Jesus to come down from the cross. Nothing. Do you understand? It would have been nothing for him to come down. He could have in a second. No problem. But his nature, his character, his name, his glory would not allow him to come down. He could not think of his own physical desire over his, the eternal damnation of others. He wanted to save a people for himself. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Isn't that truth? He was love incarnate. And that's why he stayed. So we once again see Jesus' response confirms his identity. Oh, beloved, do you see the glory of the Savior today? Do you see what he did for you? Do you understand how much he sacrificed for you and what he did for us? Is it hard to obey him now? Don't we want to? Don't we want to love our spouses? Don't we want to... Our spouses to serve one another. Don't we want to point our kids to Christ now? The more we know him, don't we want to love him? All too often we've forgotten this. I, this is one, one reason why I'm almost convinced that we ought to do the Lord's Supper more often. More and more often. See, I'm, I, there's, a, there's a struggle within me on this Lord, doing the Lord's Supper more often. One is because I grew up doing the Lord's Supper every week in the church that I went to, and it meant absolutely nothing. And, and the reality was this. I saw people doing the Lord's Supper, quote-unquote, the Mass. It's not the same, but that's what they were doing every day. It becomes a religious duty, just a thing that we're going to do. If we do this, hey, let's, oh, yeah, hurry up. Here, here's the... Come on, the clock's ticking. we got to hurry up. Drink that. Drink quick. Pass that quick. And that misses the whole point, too. Do you understand? It is a special event. It's the proclamation of the gospel. It's the thinking on Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to honor the Lord's Supper because this is the time for us to think on Christ and what He's done for us. Again, notice... King Jesus was confirmed in his sacrificial death. In verse 35, it says, And the people stood by, looking on, and even, or go to 36, rather. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. Again, in the foolishness of the soldiers that Jesus had just prayed for, they began to mock him. Because Jesus was the king of Jews, he could not save himself, though, folks. God was the king of the Jews. Do you understand that? Though they had said, give us a king, he was their king. And for years, God had given them a king, right? And King after king after king after king had failed. But one king was true. It was God himself incarnate, Jesus. So for thousands of years they had rejected God as their king. But he was still their king. And his sacrificial commitment to them was on full display at the cross. Oh, this is glorious. The inscription confirms the identity of the king. In an act of God's providence, 
His identity was posted on the placard given the reason why Jesus was being crucified. Jesus, that's what the placard was for, you understand. It was supposed to tell what the crime he did and why he was killing, being killed. You see the irony of that? He was being killed for being the king of the Jews. Exactly. Because that's what the king was supposed to do for the people. Again, if you notice, the world was clueless, but the very reason Jesus was dying was because he was the king of the Jews. He was dying to save his people, and he would not save himself because he was there, he was there to save them. Now, every Jewish king who had ever ruled had failed. But Jesus put him his people over himself. You know, who's the greatest king in the Old Testament? There you go, King David. What do we know about King David? A man after God's own heart, right? Wrote many of the Psalms. Wow, King David's great, isn't he? Oh, really? Have you forgotten Bathsheba? What did he do to one of the men that was defending him? He had him killed. Had him murdered. To cover up his own sin? Is this a king that puts other his own subjects above him? No. This is a king that lives for himself. And what does that say about David? David is a sinner like me and you. But what does a true king do? A true king is willing to lay down his life for his people. That's what true kings do. They sacrifice for their people. Over and over again we have seen as darkness ruled the day, God was still sovereignly working out his plan, and we see King Jesus is being shown to be true, even as the world rejected him. As Satan attempted to get the son to give up, the son remained resolved to obey the father's will. Jesus would not save himself because he came to save a world of sinners. So we come now to one of my favorite scenes in the cross. It is like one big glimpse into what Jesus was doing. It is the very answer to the mocking rulers and the mocking soldiers. Jesus was dying to save sinners. And in a divine act of grace, as Jesus hangs on a tree, hangs on the cross, the Spirit of God converts the soul of a criminal next to him. Look at it in verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuses at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we are indeed suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Wow, do you see the glory of this? And it's so interesting to me. Now think for a second. We're looking at the cross. What is the whole focus? The focus is on what Jesus is accomplishing for others. Even as he's dying there. Instead of focusing on, see the blood drops here and all this stuff. It's as if he's saying, look, this is why I'm doing it. And God is saying, this is why I'm doing it. To save criminals. It's glorious. The paragraph explaining the scene from the cross here is awe-inspiring. We see here the divine grace of God save a man just moments before his death. On top of this, God saves a man that just hours previously had been mocking him. When we see this conversion account in Luke, we don't get the full picture of the criminals and uh, this one that appears to repent. In Matthew's account, and you can, you can do this in your spare time, write it down in your margin. 
Matthew 27, 44. In Matthew's account, it says that both robbers who had been crucified with him were insulting Jesus. So, at this point in 39, it's been a couple hours. And it appears that at least initially, both criminals were mocking Jesus. And at some point, one of the criminals turns. It appears that as they hung on the cross, one of the two criminals started to realize Jesus was different. Whether it was his kind prayers for forgiveness to those who that were hurting him, or not returning revile for revile as everybody else that gets on the cross does, you're going to get your day. No threatening. Silent. His mother, it appears in John's account that he, he took care of his mother from the cross, literally tell, telling John, take care of her, she's your mother. Mother, this is your son. Jesus shows that he is totally different even as he hangs and suffers. And so what happens? The criminal sees the glory of the king. The criminal wakes up. And the Spirit of God obviously works on this man's heart. In some ways, this is a grace gift from the Father to the Son. Think about what's happening here. Jesus is dying, and it's as if the Father says, Here, have a convert. Look what you're doing it for. Isn't that awesome? This is how the Trinity works in all-out love at all times. So while one criminal continued to rail on Jesus, this one criminal sees the light. And notice the evidence of his heart change. And by the way, you want some evidence of a heart change in your life? It should look like this. Here's some evidences of a repentant, regenerate heart. The changed criminal rebuked the other criminal for mocking Jesus. He stands up for Christ. He says, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? In other words, first he says, look, don't you understand who God is and that we are going to face judgment? And then he also owns his own sin and he says, and we indeed are suffering justly for we are received what we deserve for our deeds. In other words, he owns what he did. He says, look, I'm a sinner. I'm nothing. I'm not worthy of this. I'm getting what I deserve. By the way, that's what a true believer looks like. We own our sin. We recognize that we are, if we got hell, we would get what we deserved, right? But then he says, but this man has done nothing wrong. He exalts Christ. He says he's innocent. He sees who Christ is. Do you understand, folks? Do you, there's been this big debate of whether or not the lordship of Jesus. Do we have to believe Jesus is our Lord or not? Give me a break. When you come to know Christ and you, you repent, you know him as your Lord. That, that's not even a question. This guy on the cross knew this. He did nothing wrong and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? What did he attribute to him? Kingship. He understands that he's the Lord. This is what a repentant person does. They recognize their sin. They turn for their sin and they trust in Christ. They know that he is their king. They know that their only hope is found in who? Him. And that's what they did. Now let me ask you a question. Side note here. Do we do this kind of repentance today? I think it's the same kind, isn't it? Do you understand when you recognize, when you sin, all too often I think we fall back into this Roman Catholic mindset. This work my way, make myself look better. Okay, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to look better. I'm going to crawl on my knees a little bit. Grovel a little bit. No. Acknowledge your sin. Turn to Christ and trust Him. Depend on Him. And by the way, your life will be different because as you trust in Him, He changes you. Those who confess Him, 
He's working, right? Oh, folks, this is what repentance looks like. Is this what your life looks like? Is this what your days look like? Oh, that mine would look even more like this, right? There's also some great hope. I like to preach this sermon sometimes even at, the, at, at funerals. Because, listen, we don't know when God saves people. Do you understand God would be great? God can save people whenever he wants. You know, if we're, uh, we often think, we often think in, in the reform circles, we think that we can sometimes identify the elect. That's garbage. Listen, nobody wears a cross on their head. Nobody has this little mark. You're the elect. Do you understand that one of your loved ones could get saved right before they breathe their last? And God would save them however he wants? God saved this criminal right before he breathed his last. Now, does that mean, does that mean uh, we should just, oh, well, I'm not going to tell them about the gospel. I'm going to wait until they get close to death and maybe. No, come on. Don't, don't pendle them the other way. That would miss the whole point. But the reality is, is this. God is the one that gives grace. He's the one that saves. He saves when he wants and who he wants, when he wants. Do you understand? He's the one. And God saved this criminal on the cross right next to Jesus. This is good news, isn't it? Next week, we'll look at the conquest of the king. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for this glorious glimpse of the cross. Thank you for Christ and him crucified, and how he saves sinners like us, like this criminal. Oh, God, help us to reflect on Christ and what he's done for us. Lord, help us now as we take the Lord's Supper to point our attention to you, to think on you, to meditate on you, to trust in you. We worship you, Father. We ask now that you help us to examine our hearts, And if there's sin that's unconfessed, that we'll turn to you, we'll trust you, we'll repent. Lord, if there's there's contention amongst the brethren, Lord, help us to turn from that. Oh, God, help us now as we take the Lord's Supper to worship you as you deserve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.